Dr. Kuntz, are the Terminators coming? <laughs> um, I don't think so. Uh, you know, leading off with a reference like that is always going to lead me to be nonplussed. But <laughs> the idea of sentient AI is, I think, uh, it's it's a little far-fetched. We have plenty of evil people running around before we worry about robots or aliens. Okay, so you're not in the Elon Musk crowd of the computers are going to be smart soon and we better be ready. Correct. And uh, I'm also not in the Elon Musk crowd of basically gaming government subsidies, which is a Bezos Musk crowd. So that's another example where, you know, you even have a public figure who's sort of tasked with being propagandistically crazy, all the while sort of masking something that is a lot more obvious and sort of pedestrian and it's evil, which would be rising taxation rising debt levels for the average American while people like Bezos and Musk continue to get extremely wealthy even during 2020. So if that's true and the Terminators are not coming and the only real threat to the future is rising debt, then why do we need guns? (laughs) We need we need guns because we're because we're free and without freedom, a slavery of the debt sort or of any other sort is really inevitable which is why disarmed societies are always societies with large levels of slavery, either proportionately and or absolutely. Could you not, in effect, say that uh, the right to the the unright, the lack of right to bear arms is kind of what slavery is? Yeah, because it means that ultimately your own life is not really in your own hands. You don't you're allowed to exist rather than existing freely. And so even your right to life, there's a phrase that links up with lots of other things, is provisional. Your right to life is dependent upon the goodwill of the government. So if you are really old or really young in America, your right to life doesn't exist functionally. And increasingly, that's becoming the case for more and more of us, even in middle age. I know this is going to come as a massive surprise to our listener base, but you are not qualified to talk about gun control as much as, well, not me, but uh, as our guest today. Yes? <laughs> yeah, that's that's totally true. Uh, we have him here because I don't think I've ever met anyone who at least is not openly an ATF agent who knows more about guns and gun control. You want to introduce this guy for us since he's your bud and part of your other podcasting crew? Yeah, this is uh, Pastor Willie Grills. He is in an undisclosed location, probably nowhere near an ATF installation. And he is one of the co-hosts, not a regular guest, but a host of Word Fitly Spoken. So Pastor Grills, uh, we're going to be starting tonight today by asking about life with guns in the U.S. before 1791. And I just got to warn you, all I know about that time period comes from the movie Cowboys and Aliens. Well, that was uh, 100% accurate. Uh, Adam is, is wrong on the on the alien question and possibly wrong on the uh, Terminator question. Good. No, but we'll, we'll see. Yeah, so, 17, so before 1791, before we have the establishment of the Second Amendment, you're talking about gun culture in colonial America. What, what is that going to look like? And we're going to use the term gun culture quite a bit. It's, it's a loose term. It's something that's going to evolve over time. But for now... It's going to be generally, you know, what's going on in the gun owning community. Well, you're looking at an agrarian people. You're you're looking at largely Protestant, uh, but there is a mix of Catholics and a mix of Native Americans. However, primarily guns are not recreational at this time. Guns are considered essential tools. You have to hunt. And that's basically it. You have to defend yourself from whatever threats you have out on the wild frontier. And you're still looking at a time where people are even settling what will become America's major cities. A few of them are in place, but they're still, they're small, not by, by today's standard, by today's standards, very small, but not by their own, but they're still taming places that are wild, very close to what we would consider largely urbanized places today. Guns and using firearms is considered a rite of passage for males at the time. So, so learning to master that skill It is a time where gunpowder is not the easiest thing to get in the colonies. And that's going to become an issue, you know, prior to the Revolutionary War. The British are going to try to stop the trade of gunpowder 
in certain cases. So if you don't have gunpowder, your firearm is pretty much useless. They are all, almost all, almost all uh, firearms in common use are simple single shot long arms. And so it does take quite a bit of discipline to learn how to use these things. So there's a lot of discipline around it. Typically what you would see is one gun per household. And that was it. That was the household gun. And yet there's no regulation on the firearms for the most part um, at this time. And to be fair, they're not quite the same machines at this time either. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Good. I was going to say that, that that sort of gun culture you know, still exists in rural areas of America. A lot of the listeners are going to be familiar with that. That's certainly the way that I was taught what firearms were for. Correct. Um, yeah, and it is, and it is interesting how it's how it's going to evolve, and hopefully we can talk about that a little bit in this episode. How people will hear gun culture, and they're going to assume we mean a lot of people will assume we mean sportsmen, right? And it's hmm. not the same. Hmm. And and even and even hunting animals in the colonial period is not sport. There there is hunting for sport, but for your average person, right? It's hunting for survival. <laughs> it's for survival, right. yeah. Yeah, one of the things that I've told both my son and then I've tried to remind myself to bring up in an argument with any triggered, screaming person that, that has an issue with me having guns, you know, why do you need these guns for? The question they yell. Uh, and my real answer increasingly is uh, wolves. And <laughs> it, it, people kind of stop. And I'm like, no, really, I live in northern Illinois, kind of in the country. And, you know, the government doesn't protect us anymore. Wolves, honestly. And I, and I told my son that too. Like, this is why we're going to practice because there might come a day. And um, I, so I think people just have lost touch with that even being the planet we live on. Yeah. Uh, and then one other thing I want to mention pre-1791 is the idea of a militia. Um, we're not talking about standing armies in early America. And that serving in a militia meant you supplied your own ammunitions and weapons. And it was mandatory for all men in most situations. So that um, the idea that you wouldn't have a gun at your disposal wasn't really a heard of concept. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. The idea that the militia is mandatory, I think, is probably a new one to most people. This sounds like pressing one into service or what we had Braveheart as a movie to save us from. Right. But it is it is different from a draft, too. And it, and it puts the equipment responsibility on the citizen. Yeah rather than it being supplied by the government. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a deal for the government. Well, the the, the presumption is that the, the basic locus of government is completely local. Hmm. Therefore, also something that even occurs as late as the Civil War is that if your local group agrees that you don't want to be here anymore, this is really early days of the Civil War, pre-1862, but it's all over the revolution. They're constantly complaining about it is that your local group can just walk away. You yeah, can they can go, go home. home. They can right. go home. That's, you know, that's, and, and you see this in, in sometimes uh, Civil War movies and stuff where people turn around and, and leave early Civil War. Well, they're deserters. Well, not quite the same. Yeah. Well, right. They don't start hanging deserters until, um, until about mid-late war <laughs> once you start dealing with a draft and things like that. Right, right, right. Okay. So then do we just kind of zoom past the Second Amendment as they covered that in poli or is that just a myth? <laughs> well, uh, there, there is a second amendment, of course. So the right, um, a well-regulated militia being necessary. Well, let's just, uh, let me read the, the exact text here so that everybody can, um, I'm, it's kind of shameful. Why are, why are you concerned about the exact text? We're just talking about ideas here. Right. Well, you know, and there you go. Excellent, excellent question. This has been kind of, uh, kind of the, the point we've revolved around during, during the whole COVID crisis, right? Who decides what is policy? What is supreme as far as our governing ideal? Is it a man? Is it a, is it a document? So, all right, well, let's just take it what it says. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Okay, very simple, seems rather straightforward, but the debate is going to be in relatively early um, in the 1800s on just what this means hmm. as we move into like the Jacksonian era, for example. So what does that mean? Well, so like today, it's been pretty much decided by the courts that there is an individual right to, to own a firearm for personal protection and really for carry outside the home. That's been pretty much settled by the courts. But it's, there's limitations within that, right? Still. There are limitations within that. Early on in this, you had same, the similar uh, questions coming up, though. Um, what are the limits of the Second Amendment? So that... Can we, can we even put a limit on it? Would it, would it be right? 
So the individual right interpretation of the Second Amendment comes up in a case called Bliss versus the Commonwealth, which maintained the right to keep and bear arms, um, people, for people to keep and bear arms in defense of themselves and the state. Okay, so the right to bear arms in defense of themselves and the state was interpreted in Bliss v. Commonwealth 1822 as an individual right. However, the case was not about firearms. The case was about a sword cane. <laughs> so, so early on when debating this, we have the broader class of weapons, not only firearms. And that's, a, that's an interesting thing, too. So even today, once you get into the 90s in America, when you have the concealed carry revolution moving on into the 2000s, some states have a concealed firearms permit or a concealed pistol permit. Other states have a concealed weapons permit. Yeah, sure. These are all three different things. So early on, the debate centers around a sword cane, which is interesting, that, that, the, that we're going to be talking about, is there a right to defense? Not just a right to firearms, but a right to defense. Right. Notably, that seems to be, the- just to jump in, that seems to be the most pressing question when I look at firearms issues. Because like, even if you have a firearm uh, in your home, there are what municipalities wherein the mm-hmm. intruder has quite a few more rights than you do. Uh, especially yeah. if you shoot him. And so yeah. uh, that that reality seems to be immediately important. Like, can I defend myself or not? So I put down my gun, I pick up a cleaver because you won't let me shoot him with the gun, which would be more safe, honestly, um, yeah, for everybody, yeah. right? Um, but he well, wants to kill me, so I need to pick up a cleaver, right? So well, what, is, I guess where those rights are what, matter. If you pick up a cleaver, you might want to get his medical records first. Oh, yeah, right. I don't know what you're going to get on you. But the, the right to defense matters. Um, even if, and even if someone would choose the right to not exercise that defense, as I, in fact, advocate from time to time. But so, yeah, this this is uh, that was Bliss versus Commonwealth. And then, I mean, I don't know how much we want to go uh, piece by piece through each of these, you know, by name. I don't think everyone's going to remember all the names of these cases. But the, <laughs> the next case, uh, what's the what's the precedent that gets added now? All right. So the, the precedent in that case is you can have a weapon to defend yourself. The next most notable case is the state v. Buzzard, and this centers out of Arkansas, and this actually does have to do with firearms. So the Ar- the Arkansas High Court adopted a political based, uh, excuse me, a militia based uh, right reading of the right to bear arms under state law. Okay, so that upheld the twenty first section of the Arkansas Constitution that said that the that the free white men of this state shall have the right to keep and bear arms for common defense, but it rejected a challenge to the statute prohibiting the carry of concealed weapons. So it affirms the right for free whites to have firearms, but does not affirm the right for them to carry them. Interesting. Okay. But doesn't yeah. prevent it either, right? It's, it's not, neither. not necessarily. It leaves it up to um, the state. Right. Now, I noticed you mentioned, you know, white was listed there in the, the ruling as uh, vanilla and unclear as that term may be, as opposed to, say, slavery, right? Is that what was going on back then? Right. I mean, you you know, were, were uh, the free blacks at the time or Indians made to serve in militias? That gets kind of mixed depending upon the states. It's really not until the 14th Amendment that these questions come in, and then you start to see more gun control laws. Yeah. And um, I, I think significant, too, for modern understandings of uh, whether or not a person should have a right to self-defense or a firearm or even a knife or something is the idea that what's debatable in the 1840s, you know, through Dred Scott in the 1850s, is whether free blacks or Indians can even be citizens of the United States. Right. And so what you can see is that the only debate that's occurring about who may carry what at what time for what purpose is a debate about what free people are permitted. So the idea that someone who is not free would also be able to defend himself is fairly unknown. And then what you're really just debating is what is what is the nature of freedom relative to weaponry and, and self-defense and stuff like that. So um, I think, yeah. I'm mean, yeah. pretty sure freedom is slavery, and George Orwell cleared that up real clear for us a little while ago. So, yeah, no, yeah, something like that. I mean, what? <laughs> how? How do the slave codes kind of make this clearer, Willie? Well, I mean, the the slave codes uh, are are interesting, right? And this is what everybody gets. So, the slave codes are 1700s at the earliest, all the way up, of course, to 1865. Slave codes simply prohibited blacks from owning guns and established laws that specifically applied only to free white men, or excuse me, uh, allowed rights only to free white men. 
you could argue that the slave codes are extended through the black codes and Jim Crow. But what we're going to see in the late mid late 19th century is that the prohibition of firearms, while the right is guaranteed to free white men, and then by extension probably should be given by the 14th Amendment should be given to free all freemen. There is mass gun control in the United States, but not at a federal level. Yeah. And this is the thing with the slave codes. The slave codes aren't necessarily federal. They're at a, either a colony level or a state level or a municipal level. So, they're, yeah, so, right. so to keep track of all this, and when we're talking about the early history, and I won't bore the audience with this, but I'm only highlighting a few codes here or a few um, cases, is there's so many of this because it's all so local. It gets much easier to parse once you get into the federal control of firearms in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's a huge distinction is that the federal government just doesn't have even self-assigned jurisdiction of the same kind. Exactly. So I I can't say, you know, I can't really paint with a broad brush here, even on slave codes, because they change from. but, But the basic idea is that slaves are prohibited from owning arms. So gun control has always been here as a local thing that local people did because of mostly local issues that probably made a lot of sense to them. And now post-Civil War, we see a different type of gun control that is a federal reality. And am I noticing a trend that the 14th Amendment seems to pave the way? I mean, is this the ghost of Margaret (laughs) Sanger again? I don't know. The Civil War paves the way. Yeah, that's right. The federalization of America paves the way. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and honestly, it's it's interesting. So you could you could make a case that states' rights aren't looking so good for private firearms. Uh, as far as the carrying and bearing of firearms in the 1800s, it gets federalized in the 20th century and you get more restrictions. But now what's really saving firearms ownership in America are states. <laughs> yeah. So we've, we've had kind of a pendulum swing a little bit. And well, what's, the, what's the moment of that? I mean, where is the, the linchpin? Well, there's, there's no one, there's no one moment. It's a, it's a series of small victories and cases and slowly winning over, winning over people. Well, Willie, what, what are the, what are the states? Are there, are they geographically clustered? Are they, do they have, you know, a set of obvious reasons for imposing gun control after the civil war? Not like today, not like today. Um, However, the reconstruction states and Jim Crow laws, uh, they are going to prohibit black firearms ownership, but, but certain Northern states are going to do that too. So that it might not be called Jim Crow, but, but you you still have this happening even in you know so-called uh, free states. So not to be a complete yeah jerk, well, uh, but, but no, the, the harbinger of racism being what it is today and the the screaming of it in every corner as the thing that must be amended. Well, let's give it its due, right? Like there was something pretty bad going on at this time tribally between the peoples on this continent. Right, and and I and I could go through all of these different um, post Civil War cases. Like, like in Louisiana, Alabama, North Carolina, um, you know, there's even a, an 1866 civil rights act that nobody really uh, t- uh, talks about, but that's, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, and, and so on and so forth. But uh, yeah, there, there's, there are oftentimes race-based gun control laws put in, put into effect. And so you'll have the, the Ku Klux Klan, <laughs> Isn't for South Chicago like the same thing? I mean, isn't it right. kind of the same thing? I, I don't want to be like the, the obtuse white guy, but I guess I, I have to be, right? Like, it just <laughs> seems to me that as much, this is certainly about power in general, right? It's, in, it's about those at the top wanting to stay at the top. So the elite wanting to main control over their market base that they rely upon to turn the rat wheel of economy. With that all being said, it sure seems to me like keeping guns out of the hands of black men is a centuries-long reality that somebody cares about. And not me. I'm not the one, you know. And that's, that's kind of what I, I'm curious about that. And I want to get to the Wild West because how can we not care about the Wild West? That's- well, yeah. And, and, and so one more, one more quick point here just before the – sort of in the Wild West period. You, you've got, for example, in Tennessee in 1870, one of the first what would come to be known as Saturday Night Special Laws. And I think it's called something like the Economic – you know, handgun ban <laughs> or so, you know, it's, it's something like that. That's how they, they passed it. But basically, so by the time you have the civil rights act of 1866, which, in, which is supposed to grant the right of any free person, any free man to own um, a firearm, 
then you get these states laws passed. And it's not always like blacks may not have guns, right? Or Indians may not have guns. It's like you could not sell a gun unless it costs X amount of dollars <laughs> or meets certain standards, certain cost prohibitive standards. So that takes away economic guns and keeps them out of the hands of poor people. Yep. Yep. And that, that is, I mean, you brought up racism, Jonathan, but I think if you look at the very beginning of American history, I mean, think about why there are two adjectives in the phrase free white men. It's because there is, there are times and places prior to the massive introduction yes. of African slavery, where there are enslaved white men, especially in the Chesapeake colonies, and they're not allowed to bear firearms. So one of the commonalities from colonial times to today is if your firearms are being taken away, it's because you will be permitted to exist upon the sufferance of someone who is allowed to own firearms. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Right. So don't yeah, forget that the world's or that the U.S. is built on both white and black slavery over time and that the right. casino of luring in new slaves goeth ever onward. Go ahead, Willie. Yeah. Um, and so just to give you like a, and, and they're very specific in these, like, and, and I find the Saturday Night Special Laws to just be so interesting. So this act in 1870 to preserve peace and prevent homicide. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> so it, it, it banned. So here's what it specifically did. Banned all sale of all handguns, except the army and Navy model handgun. And so that was an expensive gun at the time, a very highly sought after revolver. So, and when you read history books on this, you've got to be careful. It goes, it will say something like banned, you know, prohibited the own ownership of handguns in Tennessee, except for these two models, which whites already owned and blacks could not afford. That is absolute nonsense. Um, there are plenty of crackers out there who could not afford a Colt Navy or a Colt Army. You're wrong. It's Every white person is wealthy. What are you talking about? That's right. <laughs> right. Where, where are my manners? It's all, uh, we, we're not supposed to let that, we're supposed to say that part. I quiet. like the idea that every white family had like every gun ever made. Like that's a fun one. Like everyone yeah, had right. all of them. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh. so, yeah, you, you have to, you have to read these cases um, a little with a little bit of discernment. Yes. Some of it is trying to keep it out of the hands of, of exclusively former slaves. But if, if you look at them, they, they effectively keep the hands out of, any lower class. Person. Yeah. Yeah. So it's about elite and commoner and then especially about the poor and yeah. keeping the poor. Well, the, the dregs so that the civilization on top can keep stealing from them. Now the wild west though, th this is where you get into the cowboys and everything. And this is where you learn that Virgil Earp of the famous Earp brothers, you know, white Earp's brother is a statist. He is a pro gun control, anti gun <laughs> figure as a lot of these famous old west lawmen were. So like, like the scene in Tombstone, the movie Tombstone, where you see Sam Elliott hanging up the notice at the sheriff's office that you can no longer carry a gun in town, and the people are just absolutely livid over it. And he's like, we're not saying you can't own a gun. We're not saying you can't carry a gun. We're just saying you can't carry a gun in town. Absolutely true. And it was true in Tombstone. You, you have more firearms freedoms in Tombstone, Arizona today than you did in, in the 1870s. Wow. And, and it was the same way in Dodge City, Kansas. In fact, the only towns that really didn't have effective gun control were like mining camps and things like that. Things were, <laughs> where, there yeah. weren't, where there wasn't effective law enforcement. So, so all broadly, the wild was outside the city. Exactly. Exactly. And so very heavy restrictions. Now, this, this actually comes as a surprise that the Wild West is not as violent as people think it is. But I don't think that that's because they didn't let you carry guns in town. Um, it's it's simply because people had better manners then. Yeah, no, this this thought. goes to I don't I don't I think I've seen like two episodes of of Deadwood, but I, I I read an article about when they were developing that series and they wanted them to talk in an authentic way. Yeah, but it was too goofy. Right, it was too the goofy because was, yeah. because even hardened gamblers said things like "Dad Gummit, Dad Gummit, you sound like Yosemite Sam if you tried to write." Right, it's exactly. Awesome. It's yeah. so awesome. I read the same article. It's just <laughs> yeah. so great. Yeah. Oh goodness. So if if the Wild West wasn't so dangerous, what what is the agenda of make? Is this is like a pro gun control agenda in the Wild West movies being what they are, like a false representation of the uh, the in town danger, the from the well, hip well, reality? I mean, just a lot of it is just is just myth. And make I mean, what makes for a more exciting movie? Guys sitting around um, talking about the baseball scores. You know, they're getting three weeks late. Right, uh, right, right. In the saloon or or having a shootout on Main Street. Right. So there's only one Alamo. And it matters. 
And so you have to make right. about that one, right? As opposed to all the other stuff, which is just pretty normal cow herding and stuff. That makes sense. So then do we get anything in terms of law out of this the, to push forward with in the conversation? Or we, um, just kind of, we just wait around till the feds come along and say, we are the Terminators? <laughs> right. I mean, not, not so much. I mean, other than these local things that you keep, that you keep seeing pop up. Take us forward, Coons. I mean, is, is, as we get into the first couple decades of the 20th century, I think probably the biggest thing for the listener to be aware of as to, okay, why does fe- federalization has a precedent in the civil war? It, it makes it potential certain judicial interpretations, especially of the 14th amendment are going to allow the federal government to become more and more important in daily life. But I think the big thing to pay attention to is urbanization, right? Yeah. So by 1920, more Americans live in an urban area than a rural area for the first time ever. And it is the expansion of cities, especially in, you know, the Northeast and the, and the Midwest. St. Louis is, you know, America's fourth biggest city in the early 20th century. It's that urbanization, I think, that's, that's and the growth of crime that's going to drive a lot of the legislation that we're going to be talking about the rest of the show. Right, right. Yeah, big cities, a lot of control, and the gun culture goes away. If you have a gun culture primarily associated with uh, hunting and self-protection, well, you don't need to do those things in a in a city with with grocery stores or with vendors and with law enforcement officers. So then, move us forward. All right. So the twentieth century is where things get really rather interesting. So people are sort of chugging along. You're coming to the end of the old west era. And people kind of talk about the pre-incorporation era and these, you know, three cases and things like that, but not, not really important. Uh, This just has to do with, you know, what's going on at this point is the U S Supreme court is consistently ruling that the second amendment restricted Congress, not the States in the regulation of guns. (laughs) Okay. So, so they're saying, no, you can't do anything. And, and, and the federal government's eventually like, okay, we'll watch us. So 1934, you have the first, true federal firearms laws passed, at least the first major one, which is the National Firearms Act, 1934. So this is this has to do with the gangster era and the prohibition era. And they're going out with Tommy guns and they're using sawed off guns, easily concealable guns to commit crimes. Sometimes in, uh, in huge urban areas like Chicago, but a lot of times, frankly, out on the prairies when they're robbing banks and things like that. But they're using a certain class of weapons uh, namely uh, machine guns and sawed-off guns. And so what the NFA does, that's National Firearms Act again, it regulates machine guns, short barrel rifles and shotguns, and certain other weapons come under the regulation of what will become known as the BATF, or the ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. And what happens then is you can still own these firearms. You can still own a fully automatic gun, okay, you can still uh, own a sawed-off shotgun, but you must pay a $200 tax stamp and register it with the government. Now, that's $200 in 1934 money, and it's still $200 today. And that would be near probably $3,500 to $4,000 today. Golly. Yeah, so we're back to this economic prohibition again. And they're saying, well, a rash of crimes are being committed but with these firearms. Well, no, a, a handful of gangsters are, are using them. But the average American really doesn't have an interest in it. Although at this, so even though this is passed, you can at this time still get a gun delivered to your door. You don't have to go through a dealer. You can find a catalog. You can, you know, have it ordered. This is the first time you've seen actual federal gun registration, though. And it's the same way to this day. Still that $200 tax stamp, although there is a $5 tax stamp on certain other things. But $200 tax stamp on fully automatic firearms, for example. It's a little less like modifying guns to like short-barreled depending upon if it's a shotgun or a rifle, for example. Um, but that's still there. It also regulates gun silencers or suppressors. And, and so the idea is, is to try to regulate certain concealed things and certain things with a high rate of fire. And yes. also destructive devices like uh, grenades and bombs and stuff are regulated. They were not regulated until that time. Hmm. Why does this matter, Coons? Well, They're here also... to listen to you, man, not me. You ask questions. Go, go, go. You're, you're also dealing with Although America is now majority urban um, in the 20s and 30s, 4 million men were mobilized during World War I. So at least some of those men are from and return to urban areas. 
I think that when you're talking about the formation of modern gun culture, you not only need a certain amount of disposable income to buy more than the one shotgun or one rifle that the family uses. You also need recreational purposes or some other purpose, maybe uh, self-defense for which you might be using something. So I think, yeah. um, I think, yeah, the ur- I think the urban context of America is really important to why any of this changes. Well, yeah. And, ahead, and, and the, the, the return of the World War One soldiers is kind of an interesting uh, thing to bring up here when we're talking about the gun culture. And I think it does tie in. America is, you know, enamored with Lincoln quite a bit. And so the South's been beat down. And so people are getting used to the idea of a big federal government. So World War One soldiers come back and you have the bonus army who are marching to get their World War One bonuses early. And so they have an encampment at the Capitol. And what happens? Federal troops assault them, set fire to their camp and drive them out. And I think that's really the beginning of Americans waking up to not wanting big government again. Hmm. I think you can almost point to the to the horrible press from the bonus march. I mean, yeah. and, and you couldn't right. imagine something like that happening today. No, no. I, I, I think that the idea that the government is not necessarily on your side is going to become a part of this because for the vast majority of the American population by by the 1920s and 30s, which either is of northern descent, which always had a larger population, or of immigrant descent, and what is it even here during the Civil War, the idea that the federal government is not benign is, is fairly foreign because we experienced overall increasing prosperity, increasing success, and increasing standing in the world from you know the late 1860s through, let's be honest, the 1960s. So any, any hint that the government is not necessarily on your side is going to be somewhat foreign. And some of the things that we're talking about, especially in, in this episode, part of the reason that they're obscure is because they resemble sort of rumblings about like um, political correctness and affirmative action in the 1980s or something. You know, the average person still didn't really have to care very much about, you know, some university being anti-white in its admissions policies. It didn't matter. So you get these rumblings and the rumblings always resemble the earthquake. Like, you know, the National Firearms Act, you know, <laughs> the the pretext is going to be essentially journalistic coverage of gangsters, but the impact right. is on the average person. Right. It's a lot and, like and today where we have the yeah. uh, go ahead, Willie. Well, no, I'm just saying like, yeah, and it's going to affect the way that it affects the average person is through bureaucracy. Right. And you get this whole before that, we just had the idea of keeping and bearing arms. Now you have the division at a federal level of what kind of firearms between Reg, you know, semi-auto, fully automatic, any other weapons, SBRs, SBSs, any other weapons, destructive devices, suppressors, all of these regulations that are immediately put upon otherwise law-abiding people overnight. Right. It sounds Although, to me like this is the, the wag the dog story, too, where you have uh, small, isolated problems played up by national media for the sake of a, a greater agenda. So I think something you can see, I think that's spot on, because what you can see is that if the rumblings are like the earthquake, then then past rumblings are going to resemble things that you see a lot of. It's usually on a smaller scale in early earlier history, or it's distributed through newspapers that in rural areas is still passed from hand to hand largely and not read the day that they're published. But you're dealing with an, an essentially similar reality where in order to explain to an ostensibly democratic populace who are theoretically the the basis of power in a republic, why we are regulating something we've never regulated before. You have to make them aware of certain outstanding crimes of some kind and lionize lawmen, whether it's Elliot Ness in the Depression or these sorts of uh, gun control fanatics in in the Old West, you have to lionize them, even if they are, when you dig down into the biography, inevitably adjacent to and sometimes indistinguishable from the criminals whom they are supposedly suppressing and at least as violent, if not more. So you get good guys and bad guys and you get the populace rooting for the good guys. And in order to suppress the bad guys, we're going to have to do X, Y and Z. So I, I, I see enormous continuity between you know National Firearms Act 
and you know 9-11 Patriot Act <laughs> in just the methodology. How, how does like the Will Rogers Cowboys and Indians 50s culture play into this? Well, we're not there yet. No. Okay. Still, well, then. Yeah. We're still, well, I mean, we're still in the 30s at it's, this point. It's all before yeah. I was born, Willie. So it's only like one moment in time. You understand? Sure. <laughs> sure. I mean, the Great Train Robbery. You know, the first um, you know true motion picture is a western, but uh, we're not into the into the into uh, uh, Roy Rogers just yet. So. Um, <laughs> yeah. So how, how does? But, but I think, think U.S. V. Miller involved here. Yeah. Uh, but I will come back to that because I do think that uh, that Hollywood has a has a or plays a role in this uh, yeah. later. But yeah, uh, U U S V Miller, and I'm going to spare you the details. It's kind of convoluted, but but basically, two defendants, Miller and Layton, they're indicted on charges of feloniously transporting an interstate commerce an unregistered double barreled 12 gauge shotgun having a barrel less than 18 inches in violation of the National Firearms Act. This gets to the Supreme Court uh, after being after uh, so they're indicted on this. It's declared unconstitutional by a lower court uh, because they say, well, the Constitution doesn't speak to the length of uh, of shotgun barrels. And there's you can look at this case if you believe some historians who say that the judge was actually pro gun control, but he knew because that this that one of the defendants was a bank robber that he would be dead if he testified had to go to court and testify against the rest of the gang so that he would go into hiding and this whole convoluted mess. But anyway, uh, what ends up happening is they, the court basically argues on four, on four points, or, or sorry, the, the United States attorneys, that the NFA is intended as a revenue collecting measure. And so it should fall with it uh, under the treasury. Okay. So the NFA is not primarily about safety. It is about revenue. Uh, two... <laughs> that it is actually a case about interstate commerce because they went from Oklahoma to Arkansas. Three, that the Second Amendment only protects the ownership of military-type weapons. Now, that's a reverse from today, right, where they want to say, well, it's only for sporting guns. Well, one of their, one of their reasons to uphold the NFA was to say that, no, the, the Second Amendment is about military guns. <laughs> and then oh, four... Why would uh, you need an amendment to give you the right to shoot a pigeon? Right, right. And then four, that this double-barreled shotgun with a, with a sawn-off barrel, uh, with a cut-down barrel, was never used in any militia organization. And the Supreme Court sides with them. Huh. So, so that they say that it's not unconstitutional because these powers, you know, um, it's not an invasion of the reserve powers of the state. And two, it doesn't violate the Second Amendment. And so they basically uphold the NFA here. It's a very interesting case because the defendant's not there. He has actually shot dead before the trial that happens i hear <laughs> right we talked about that and a couple other things what, 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 is, what episodes were that coons you the the compounds and the kids and the dog the dog that was so sad well that that's, that's that's the process of the government later on admitting secretly silently and with minimal media coverage that it was ever wrong about anything so similar similar yeah right. And I don't know if we'll, if, we'll, if we'll get to Ruby Ridge post in this or not. Um, is, the, is there enough time? In oh, yeah, we've got 20 minutes here, Willie. We got, we got, we got so, right. All right. So you, now, now in uh, the 30s, you have the registration of uh, firearms for the first time, National Firearms Act. Uh, then we get to the next uh, major body, which is the Gun Control Act of 1968. There is a there is a small omnibus, or a small, smallly related to firearms anyway, omnibus crime bill of 1968 that does have some gun control in it. But the big one is the Gun Control Act of 1968. So it's two, two different bodies. Why would it be 1968? Why was this not happening in 1955? Right. Well, um, that would be Mr. Lyndon B. Johnson. <laughs> and, and once you've had the assassination of Kennedy... And then you have the fomenting of race riots and things like that at this time. The country is starting to really blow up, so to speak. You have the pretext for control. Yeah, that, that nexus between disorder and consequent harsher regulation imposed on someone who is not actually creating the disorder, right? So if you, in 1961, could still go into your local hardware store and buy a gun... That's that's eventually going to be a problem, even if your little town and your local hardware store had nothing to do yeah. with 
you know, astronomically rising crime rates in the late 60s and 1970s. To right. throw back to last episode a little bit, does it work that way once you start putting up, I forget what they're called, the the kind of shanty towns in South America? Do those those laws still favelas? work? Favelas? Yeah, favelas. Do they work in the favelas? Such such control well, measures? I mean, I, where I'm really <laughs> pushing at here is like, at what point, I, I want to push this to, the, to like the present and we can hop right back. How close are we to hardware shops somewhere in this country saying, yeah, we sell guns? I mean, how far are we from that really becoming a reality? You got in obviously futuristing is just guessing. Well, I mean, this is what's before the Department of Justice right now on so-called ghost guns. You know, who is who is a dealer, who is a gunsmith, and who is just a guy making a gun for personal use? Um, it's legal for you to make a firearm for personal use. Okay, and this comes through all of the legislation we're going to talk about pretty soon. It's illegal to manufacture for sale, and you can't just be in the business of manufacturing guns without a license. But someone's or, doing it, right? Someone, someone like it's is doing it in our cities, right? See, I don't think that it, it is with the ghost guns. I don't no. think in our in our cities there the crimes that are committed by so called ghost guns, and what they mean are individually manufactured weapons. And these are not uh, like zip guns and stuff like you see uh, overseas. Although th- there are some in the cities, the majority of gun crimes that we see are either you know, legally acquired ones that have been stolen or legally acquired ones that end up on the secondary market and somehow end up in the hands of criminals. But we are not seeing right now a huge rash of crimes being committed by these ghost guns, yeah. just, like we, just like we never saw a huge rash of crimes committed by guns regulated by the NFA. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the 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 Venn diagram that is trying to depict overlap between guys that can purchase and competently run, you know, a 3D printer and uh, guys who are involved in drug crime in, in the south side of Chicago, that that overlap is is vanishingly small, if not, you know, zero. So, yeah. Now, and, and I won't mention certain names of manufacturers, but there are certain guns that pop up more often. And I, and I think that the reason for that is price and availability, but that's still no reason to ban them. That's That's a very horrible way to argue because there's no shame in having an inexpensive firearm what necessarily. Kind of, what kind of leeways were granted to the ATF in this Gun Control Act of 1968? What kind of new measures were they able to take? Do you know All that right. kind of stuff? So, so first, just really quick, in the Omnibus Bill in 68, this prohibits the interstate trade in handguns and increased the minimum age to buy handguns to 21. Then we roll over to Gun Control Act of 68. And remember, kids, you can go out of state and buy an AR but you cannot buy a like 357 Magnum revolver out of state. It has to be shipped to a dealer in your state. Thanks. Thanks, Linda Johnson. That makes sense. Okay. So the gun control act is, is really probably the most egregious one or the one we'll say that affects the average gun owner the most, even more so than the NFA. Oh, uh, you don't have a registration though. So this is really the one that they push in response to the assassination of Kennedy in 1963. And then you have the assassination of Martin Luther King in 68 and the assassination of Bobby Kennedy in 68. So you have then now prohibited persons. So you have, and then you have background checks that are going to be added by uh, the Brady bill later. But what, um, what the gun control act of 68 does is it stops the sale of, of firearms directly to civilians. Now you have to have a dealer as a pass-through. Okay. So like today, if you want to buy a firearm, you can't open, you can't go to Amazon and order a gun. Uh, a lot of people don't, don't know this, but, but you can. <laughs> so uh, you, you can't do that. Um, it prohibits the general interstate transfer of firearms, except through dealers. So you cannot sell a gun to someone across state lines and it prohibits selling to prohibited persons. Also included in this are all kinds of things regarding the importation of of guns so that they must be recognizable or readily adaptable to sporting purposes. That's the language of the law, readily adaptable for sporting purposes. So now now we're getting into the question of sporting. Oh, oh, gun ownership is about sporting. So you can't import Italian-made small pistols anymore or, or the Walther PPK, for example, very famous pistol, could not be legally imported after 1968. Now it is available again because Walther is making them stateside in Arkansas. There is a point system for what can be imported into the United States as a result of the Gun Control Act. And some of this goes through amendments. Uh, there are now marking requirements that you can easily track the guns. This is where, although many guns had serial numbers before, after 68, they all have to have serial numbers. And this really gives the ATF broad leeway here on enforcement, too. 
and and as the years go on and what's and what leads up to the ironically named Firearms Owners Protection Act is a kind of a, a leashing of the ATF in 1986. Well, what's that mean then? Well, that the accusation was that after 68, you have all of these different regulations on guns and the idea is that they would go after criminals or after smugglers or things like that. But the ATF began going after individual dealers almost exclusively. They weren't busting high-end people or anything like that. They're going to mom and pop dealers and busting them for paperwork errors okay? <laughs> and things like that. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and so a FFL, a, a firearms dealer has to keep a book of all firearms transactions and a record of all uh, serial numbers and inventory going in and out. And so if they find one discrepancy here, they're hitting them hard. So they're like right? the IRS and the DMV well, only with much less to do. Well, and, literally the same department at a certain point uh, because they're originally treasury and then they end up, you know. Well, yeah. And so it sounds they're, more they're, and more like this yeah. is a revenue thing in some way. This is about well, controlling commerce. And the only revenue they bring in, though, is still from those from those tax stamps and then from the fees for, for licensed dealers. They make money from that. But it does seem like there's an awful lot about control here that comes up. And you can control people by, you know, you're going to go to a store. And, and let's say that, you know, it's not even a dedicated gun store. It's a hardware store that has a gun section. They still have to be treated like a dealer just the same. Well, there's your whole livelihood shut down. Yeah. And they can, they can shut you down and, and seize everything if they want to. And um, you had a lot. Of, you had a lot more home-based dealers in those days. Um, they they really started cracking down on those in the mid two thousands. Nothing illegal about being a home-based dealer, but if you were even accused of having something prohibited, or you weren't the class of dealer to have a certain item, I mean, they're coming in. You know, they're shooting your dogs. They're they're assaulting families. Right. There's one famous case about a mis uh, where where they banged this poor dealer's wife up against the wall so bad that she miscarries. Oh golly. And I intentionally didn't refresh myself on all these cases because I, I don't want to say too much because <laughs> it's there's a history, though, from 68. I mean, you could argue from 30 from 34, too, but really from the late 60s on up into the 80s and 90s, it gets really, really bad as, as far as the treatment of certain people. Well, he did. Yeah. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Did uh, did Ronald Reagan sign the Firearms Owners Protection Act or the Undetectable Firearms Act in 88? 80, well, 80, 86. Yeah, yeah. The Protection Act is 86, and then there's the undetectable one. In, in oh, 80. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The undetectable. <laughs> yeah. He's, so he's still in office. That's an election year, but he's still in office. Did he sign those, or were they passed over his veto? Uh, let me um, let me double check on the on the undetectable one, because that's all. No, it, no, he signed. He, I'm 100% sure he signed the undetectable one. Okay. Yeah, that did not get vetoed. Yeah, because I, I, I think that this is, a, this is kind of a key part of it especially for a lot of our listeners, the sort of conservative mythos of America is that yes. Ronald Reagan was going to actually restore a bunch of things. Um, whereas <laughs> right, right. In, in practice, he's, he's passing things that make life more difficult for the average person, just like when he legalized abortion as governor of California. Right, right. And I will remind you that, that the NRA supported a lot of these gun bans. The NRA supported, or at least the executive director at the time, supported the ban on mail order sales, for example. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then they would say things like, we don't think any sane American who calls himself American can object to this being placed in the bill. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, then he, and, he, and he actually references the assassination. And so you get that a lot. And the you gentle get that tone from... really helps the conversation move forward, I think. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, Reagan is not the greatest on this. And, I mean, that's not to say that Bush and Clinton are going to be better. That's not the point. What what the fire what the uh, Firearms Owners Protection Act does that's good is that it's made in response to what's perceived as an overreach of the ATF, mm -hmm. and because uh, they're given that wide latitude of regulating the FFLs. Mm -hmm. Okay, but unfortunately, uh, what it does is it bans new automatic firearms. So what that means is uh, guns that virtually no crimes have been committed with are now banned. You cannot own you cannot own a fully automatic firearm unless it was manufactured prior to a certain date in 1986. So that's going to become like gold. And, and that's exactly what it does. That's why they're prohibitively expensive. They're prohibitively expensive because civilians can only own these from a certain pool. Now, dealers can have them for demonstration purposes, 
and law enforcement <laughs> and law enforcement can have them, but uh, but the civilian yeah. may not. And that, so, yeah, that's that a is, very limited pool. That is a great point on the law enforcement, because something that, you know, we're not tracking because we're talking about gun control, sort of how, how does it affect the average person, is that we move from not really having police forces, certainly not standing police forces, really anywhere in the United States when we where when and where we started this story, not even in our largest city, Philadelphia in 1791. And by the 1980s, we have not only enormous police forces that are armed with lethal weaponry, but they're also, especially increasingly after Vietnam and as the military begins to transfer assets, both to reserve and guard units, but also you start to get these programs which allow police forces to buy at big discounts, maybe even given away, not totally sure on those details, military weaponry. And so the military, you can't have a machine gun anymore, normal person, but the police who have never had a machine gun can. Yeah. And it's funny. It took them 40 to 50 years to go from revolvers to semi-automatic pistols (laughs) in like five years to go fully militarized. Right. Right. (laughs) And yeah. Oh, and okay. So on the, on the national, yeah, go ahead. You haven't seen like what they're up against and how important it is for them to be more armed because police violence is not a problem ever anywhere. And (laughs) I mean, which narrative am I supposed to listen to is where I'm at. I just don't even know. Golly. Just this one. (laughs) Just this one. (laughs) What's an, before going, what's an FFL? You dropped that term. I don't know what that is. Oh, uh, that's a federal firearms licensee. Okay. So that's a person who owns a federal firearm, federal license to sell firearms. It's a dealer. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and I've, yeah, sorry. And if, and if I do that, uh, I've intentionally tried not to use any insider terms, but it's going to be hard. Hey, we're so, all about the insiders here in a brief history of power two white guys. And we do have <laughs> just a few moments left during which we definitely need to talk about the Brady bill, 1993. All right, so the Brady Bill is actually kind of related to the Firearms Owners Protection Act because it's Reagan-related. And um, Brady is uh, injured during the assassination attempt on uh, Ronald Reagan. And so the, the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act was eventually enacted by Congress, and it imposed a five-day waiting period on all gun purchases, at least until the National Instant Criminal Background Check System came into play, or NICS. That was in 1998, I think, when Nix was instituted. Did the guy who shot Reagan buy the gun within five days of the event? Well, <laughs> it's funny. Uh, uh, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it is. I'm kidding. Please, right, right. Go. Well, um, yeah, that's the thing. Uh, he So John Hinckley buys his 22 caliber RG-14 in Texas at a pawn shop on October 13th, 1980. And the shooting is what, like March 30th, 1981? Yeah. So he must have really been angry <laughs> because that's always the argument for waiting periods, a cooling off period, which is a presumption of guilt, in my opinion. It's um, a very strange law, and it just seems to be sort of the, the yeah. piecemeal taking of powers, yeah. as it so, were. So, so now, since Nix has come into play. What's um, that? No one knows what that is. The, the is national that, it's like, ins- like the realm of the underworld in a video game I played. Well, well I mean, to be fair, I did just say it. But yeah, the National uh, Instant Criminal Background Check System. So, and I was supposed a, to remember that up the first time. Is there were, a test later, really? Yeah, I'm there will fan. be a test. You you will lose your Second Amendment rights if you don't pass <laughs> it. Right? Yeah, you you will be forced to carry only high okay, points. Okay. So it's and the national shots. the national IC. It's the national yeah. instant criminal background check system. Wow. Yeah, and yeah, it's a mouthful. So Nick's were short, and so that does away with the five day waiting period at a federal level. So that now, if you're in a free state and your background check is run. Typically, it goes through the system relatively quickly, and then it comes back either um, approved, delayed, or denied. If it's approved, in most states, you can take it home that same day. In certain states, there's a waiting period no matter what, like Reverend Fisk, like you're my in my beloved, state, right? My beloved, not homeland, yeah. but I'm stuck here forever because right. God so, made me. A mandatory three-day waiting period for the good people of Illinois. Which and has it used kept to be- me from buying a gun for nearly a year and a half. It's really yeah, amazing. It, I'm that lazy. It, it used to be um, only for handguns, but in the last couple of years, it's now for long guns as well. Just just on the Illinois front, I, I, COVID has done a number on the state's ability to do much, and it's quite amazing how many conceal and carry 
permits I now know of that were filed that have not right. been uh, fulfilled. Everything's way backed up. Something else well, that's really interesting here, I'm curious, yeah. probably is the case uh, where you are, Willie, but uh, Indiana, I don't know, is uh, ammunition just been real tough to come by. Yeah, that's that's all across uh, yeah, the board. This is the everywhere. worst. This is the worst I've seen it. This is worse than you know 2008 to 2016. This is this is worse because for a while it, the first big panic in the 2000s panic by you could still find like 40 caliber sometimes, but nine millimeter, five five six. The really popular ones were gone. You couldn't find regular 22 long rifle for like three years. Uh, this even shot, even like bird load shotgun shells are gone. I have never seen a rush like this, and I don't know if it's the stimulus checks helped that or what. Mm-hmm. Um, you used the word "helped" in the same <laughs> sentence. We're going to end this interview soon. Right. <laughs> Did you get one more uh, thing yeah, before but, we go. You you mentioned yep. free state, and then you you mentioned that Illinois is not a free state. But let's go right. ahead and put some meat on that. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, Illinois uh, requires a license to own a firearm, any firearm. And it's 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 inexpensive, okay. So that's not offensive. And most people will say, well, it keeps it out of the hands of criminals. So why do I matter? But we don't have a speech license. We don't have a license for a right to due process. It hasn't Any, kept it out of the hands of criminals in South Chicago. So I just, it hasn't I don't kept it know. out. Of, yeah, and they blame know. they blame Indiana for that or whatever. But it's done nothing that we can see that's a, that that actually helps crime. Yeah, I realize ten dollars is not much, but that ten dollars. And the delay in processing yes. might stop someone from being able to defend themselves. I'm not going to be the judge of someone and say, well, you can afford $10. I don't know. But I know that some people can't afford to afford $10 and they can't afford to wait a year uh, for the right to purchase a firearm. Well, I guess we're going to end the episode here pretty soon. That that does uh, bring it up. We're going to have another episode with more information, bringing stuff up to date for next week. But if, in fact, between now and then, all things have broken loose and the world is going crazy, what is your best advice these days? What should people be ready for, Pastor Girls? How are you? Maybe I say this way. You know, what do you tell your people in the pew to expect in terms of this kind of preparations or even having yeah. those conversations? Right. And, uh, and we will talk. I do hope to talk at length uh, more about this uh, in, the, in the next episode. But now is your question about, you know, should they go out and buy a firearm or? A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Buying firearms is not for everyone, okay? I think that as heads of households, you should seriously consider it because it is the most effective means for defense and for procuring game that we have. People need to research uh, the firearm they're going to buy. They need to learn to respect the firearm and to understand that exercising this right, and by exercising, I don't mean blasting away a mugger, but I mean actually owning, uh, possessing a firearm uh, is a responsibility um, just like bridling your tongue regarding the First Amendment sometimes, right? You need to um, bridle uh, yourself and be controlled around a firearm, be disciplined with them. And yeah, now might be the time to look into it because with legislation coming down the pike, uh, we never know where the wind is going to blow as far as public opinion goes. So if people want to get them, they should look into it. Prices are starting to come down as far as firearms go. Availability is starting to be, to rise back up. Um, but people need to be to be diligent about it and be mindful of it. And and yes, I do think it's a wise thing to do. But if you decide you're going to be a firearms owner, then you need to take a reverence for the gun very seriously. That's right. Practicing the right, I think, is is a key phrase that you're going to practice with this thing, and you're going to yes. practice not in your backyard by yourself. You're going to practice with someone who's going to teach you how to right. use it. Uh, right. And, it, and, and, and it's not it's not only marksmanship; it's maintenance. Okay. It's discipline. It's keeping your finger off the trigger till you're ready to shoot. It's understanding how this gun functions. Functions. If you're weird like me, it's understanding the history of the gun uh, and its origin and things like that. But um, you know, knowing how it works, knowing how to keep it going, and treating this thing uh, with with respect, uh, maintaining it. Don't treat it like um, you know. Don't don't treat it like with awe. That's not what I'm saying. But well, dude, dude, it's, it's something dude, you, need, my, you need to be careful. My particular with. piece was crafted by elves on a full moon night with all sorts of stuff going on. So the history of the gun does matter, and and you, know, <laughs> you can you can have a certain level of adoration that you give to certain. Yeah, oh no, no, that that, that's perfectly fine. You yeah. know, the, uh, what is it called? You know, the, the pistol of glorious nonsense or something like that. But Doctor Coons, you want to give us something serious to end today's episode with? Lead us into next time. <laughs> yeah, I mean the 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 reason that we're talking about this at such length and will be in the next episode is simply because. Uh, we want you to maintain and extend, if possible, the freedom that we believe you've been given by the creator to defend yourself and the lives of those entrusted to your care. 
So it's, it's extremely basic and basic doesn't mean, you know, stupid or easy. It means absolutely fundamental so that eclipsing, you know, the right to defend yourself uh, is an eclipse of lots of other things. And wherever we see it, we see slavery and murder ensue. Absolutely. Every case in every case. That's Dr. Adam Koontz and our guest, Pastor Willie Grills, talking about gun control here on A Brief History of Power to White Guys. You know where to find us or you would not be here. 